Okay, we're doing a series on Lent, that is the events that led up to the crucifixion of Christ. And in this, on Tuesday nights, we're doing things that normally get skipped over. And uh, so you're at a tremendous advantage over the people who only come on Sunday. You will know more than twice as much as they do uh, because of your attendance here. And it should help us to have a better grasp of the crucifixion of Christ, and in particular, the mind of Christ as he comes through this week. So I uh, applaud you for coming and uh, for focusing as together with us on the crucifixion, the events leading up to it. There are some things that never get talked about. And tonight we're going to look at one of those things that just doesn't get talked about when we come to this season of the year. Because, first of all, I think it's a little hard to wrap your mind around. And second of all, some things you can read over them just click like that and it's all done. <laughs> you ever do that? Read through the Bible? Oh, I read that. I got it. No. No, you don't. All right. But there are things like that that are very quick, easy to read over. You think, well, this doesn't seem like it's significant. So today we're going to talk about cursing the fig tree. Uh, and that's in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We'll be taking our thoughts from there. And we try to keep a timeline in our mind when we're talking about uh, the last week of Christ's life. We know that on Sunday, uh, he uh, came into Jerusalem. We call it now Palm Sunday. Rode in on a donkey. That was our topic on Sunday. And uh, we discussed the, that event. Then we go to Monday and what happens on Monday and then Tuesday, all right, and so these are very specific events tied to a day of the week. Uh, when we get to Monday, uh, that's when Jesus clears the temple. And if you read some of the gospel stories, it will appear that he did it on Sunday. But when you read other ones, it says that he did it on Monday. That's the correct thing. Sometimes the the authors who wrote these things didn't really care what happened Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. They said it's much more important to tell you the event and what happened than to tell you what day it happened. And so uh, Matthew was particularly like that. When you read him, you'll be all confused as if you try to sort days because he, he doesn't care about that. He's not interested in that. He's interested in the series of events. He'll put two day into one just like that. And so uh, Mark is much better at separating and he does a good job. That's why we're using Mark on Sunday morning because of that uh, and other things too. But as we come uh, to Monday, that's when he clears the temple. He doesn't do it on Sunday. He comes in on Monday and clears the temple. So we will start on Monday and we will go over into Tuesday tonight and probably Sunday more of Tuesday's activities. Uh, but this is one, like I said, that people just simply uh, don't know. They don't talk about it. I never in my life heard a sermon on it. I heard a lot of sermons. I said a lot of sermons <laughs> and never preached on it. And so it's fun to get into these things that are a little different. And so we try to trace the steps of that week. And you say, well, what's the good of knowing it? The good of knowing it is watching Jesus. Uh, and I'm always interested in what's he thinking? What's he thinking? And we're usually wrong about what we think. And he's right. And this is going to be one of those cases. So here we go. Uh, <clears throat> Mark chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse number 11. Uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked around about on all things, and now when the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So that's Sunday night. He's come in 
over the Mount of Olives riding the donkey. He's come down into Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple, didn't say anything. Walks around and looks at everything. All right? There would be nothing would chill me more than to have Jesus walk around and look in here. Oh, man. Because he can see what we can't. Okay? He can walk in and see. So he walks in the temple. He looks it over very carefully. And he goes home. All right, verse 12. Now we're come to Monday morning. On the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And so he leaves Jerusalem every night because they're trying to kill him. It's the main reason. They want to kill him. They're looking for any way they can do that. And if they can get him in town somewhere, then they can kill him. They can sneak up in the night on him. And so he leaves Jerusalem. And notice, as he's coming in, it says he's hungry. Now, he's been staying at Mary and Martha's. So do you think that Mary and Martha didn't feed him any breakfast? <laughs> You know better than that, right? You know they got all kinds of food. But he probably didn't eat. And we try to think about why that is. But you can see it anywhere. You go all through the Gospels and you see it all the time. He'll come in, do the miracle, do something, and everybody's sitting around and he disappears. He goes out and prays. And whenever you read that he disappears and goes out and prays, it's always all night. All right? Don't ask me how. Uh, it's just that he's who he is. But he, he goes out and prays all night. And so I think he's been working all night. You understand that some things are much more demanding. If you stand up and preach, much more demanding. It's demanding. And it's, and it's tiring. And if you're going to pray all night, then you're going to be tired. And so he gets up early in the morning. He's hungry, it says, as he's coming into Jerusalem. Verse 13. Watch every word. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. So, he is walking into Jerusalem, and off in the distance there's a fig tree. Now, fig trees would be planted in an orchard a lot of times, but it didn't have to be. Occasionally, just like you drive down this road or any road, there's a tree grows by the side of the road. Where would it come from? Nobody knows. There it is. It's growing there, right? So, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, looks off in the distance, and there's a fig tree. And he's thinking, I'm hungry. I'll get some figs off the tree. And it says it's not time for figs yet. All right? And we're going to have to think about that. But we'll explain that in just a second. Verse 14. <clears throat> nothing, he found nothing but leaves, but for, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now, the fig tree is different than anything that we are used to here. Um, it's... Uh, We'll have old fruit on it from the last year sometimes, and there will be new fruit on it. And on the end of the little branch will start to be a round growth, just like it looked like a little apple, and it'll start to grow and, and turn red. And that's ready, you can eat that when it gets up to where it's red. And then the leaves come. And we're not used to that. We're used to, you know, usually uh, fruit, you see some blossoms, and then the leaves all come, and then the fruit is later. But with a fig tree, fruit comes first. All right? And fruit comes followed by leaves. All right? So when there's leaves on the tree, then there should be new fruit ready. Now, sometimes on a fig tree... There's old fruit. And the thing about this one is it's sitting by the side of the road. It doesn't belong to anybody. 
all right? It's not in an orchard. It's not being cared for. It just grew by the side of the road. And so anybody can go there and pick whatever fruit is on it, whatever they want. And so this particular tree was before uh, normal time, before the normal time for leaves and figs, all right, or figs first and then leaves. And so he's hungry, goes to the tree, looks it all over, there's not a fig on it. Not old one from last year, which could be possible in a fig tree, but more than that, there's no new fruit on it. And so the leaves now cover the tree, which would normally say, okay, uh, it should be figs. Figs first, then leaves. So if a tree's covered with leaves, it should have figs on it. He goes to it, and there isn't any fruit on it at all. And so uh, there's no owner. Nobody owns this tree. It's just by the side of the road. And so he curses it. He said, no man eat of thee hereafter forever. You will never again have fruit. And that's all. And nobody pays any attention really to it. And he walks away. Now, uh, why curse a tree? Why curse a tree? What are you going to put a curse on a tree for? It's just a tree, right? Tree didn't think, I'm going to fool somebody, watch this. Tree doesn't think. It's an inanimate object. So why does he curse that tree? It didn't sin, right? Fig tree didn't do any sin. It just didn't have any fruit. But when he comes to it, he curses the tree. So what's he thinking? Why does he curse a tree that he comes to when it's just a tree by the side of the road? Why does he do it? Good question. Why did he curse the fig tree? Now, always with Jesus. When you come to something like this, you can ask yourself the question when you're reading the Bible and when you're studying in particular, what's he thinking? We've got to know what he's thinking about. And it's important for us to figure out, if we can, what he's thinking about in order so we can answer the question, uh, why did he curse the fig tree? So let's Go on, and maybe we can figure that out. Verse 15. They come to Jerusalem. Jesus went into the temple, began to cast out them that sold, and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. And when the evening was come, he went out of the city. So he comes into town, into Jerusalem, stops for a fig, Curses the tree. We don't know why yet. But he, where, where's his next stop? Is in the temple. The day before, it says he went in and he looked everything over. He walked around, looked it all over. He's assessing what's going on in the temple. Okay? And so he's decided tomorrow I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fix that mess. And I got to tell you what, man, it must have been shocking. Because he doesn't come up to the money changer and say, no, you shouldn't be doing that, does he? He tricks the table and flips it upside down. All right? There's people who got doves. All right? And he says, 
You, get out. I want you out. You go. Get out of here. And he drives those people out. And there's people with sheep. And the only thing, uh, you've never probably been in any place like that, where it's a great big open market. Buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to have it. I refuse to have it. So you're out. The money changers are out. People that sell doves are out. Uh, He's throwing people out all over who are selling. Drives them out. And then they say, well, I'll grab my soul and and I'll carry it. Put it down. Put it down. Don't carry it in the temple. It's chilling. It's chilling to me. So you got to know that made a stir. Whoa. That made a stir. Now, who runs the market? The family behind the marketplace is the high priest Caiaphas. His family. His father in law is named Annas. And Annas is the brains behind the crucifixion of Christ. Somebody figured out how to manipulate uh, the Roman government. It's Annas, it's not Caiaphas. He's not that smart. All right? But his father-in-law is. The house of Annas had seven sons, and all seven of them became high priests. Caiaphas, who's the high priest at this moment, is a son-in-law. They are absolutely rolling in money. They are loaded. They got millions, in our thought, millions, more than millions of dollars. They have more money than anybody in the whole city of Jerusalem. And they have made it right there in the temple. And that's what made Jesus angry, what made him so firm and so stern when he walks in there. Uh, And here's the thing, all right? So if you're sitting in the temple and doing something, you come up and throw your table all over and your coins are rolling all over the place. I said, get out. Would you get out? Why would you get out? Because you got a guilty conscience. That's why. You got a guilty conscience. And, And the whole place clears out. One guy. Now this thing is huge. This thing probably covers, who knows, five, six acres. The, 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 the uh, temple itself was 27 acres, which is a pretty big place, okay? And a lot of it is outdoor, uh, open areas surrounded by walls. And it's out in this open area that they're running this marketplace. And one man walks around and, and empties a whole place out. And if anybody, if you're sitting there doing business, I got a right to do business here. The high priest said I could do it. So why do they go? Because they're guilty. They know. They know what they're doing. And he can toss them out on their ear because they're guilty. Why? Think about what Jesus is thinking about as he comes in that morning. Now, when he explains it to the people afterwards, he says, is it not written, or didn't you read in the Bible? (laughs) He likes to remind people that, especially the Pharisees, because we're the Bible experts. We know our Bible better than you or anybody in the world. So he loves to say, oh, did you read that one? Because <laughs> we all know that there's some verses we'd like to skip. Right? The ones that say, oh, that got me. Maybe I'll turn a page. All right? And so uh, 
He says it's written. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. So you're supposed to come here and particularly because it is what? Passover. Why are you there? To celebrate what God did 2,000 years before when they brought them out of Egyptian slavery. They're to be thinking, I'm here to thank God for the blessings that he's given us, and we're going to thank God for all those things. And, of course, that Passover would extend itself to any freedom. Okay? So it goes back to Genesis and Exodus when they come out of Egypt, but it also extends itself back to what? Babylonian captivity. They were slaves in Babylon, all right? And they, after 70 years under Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, came out of slavery again. So Passover is a big deal. We celebrate our freedom from Egypt, from Babylon, from Assyria. And so this is what's supposed to be going on. You're supposed to bring your lamb here, Passover lamb. You bring that lamb and you say, thank you, God, for what you did. You set us free. Thank you, God, for all those things. We're here to thank you. And God will say to you, no, I want to bless you. Not just thank me, but I want to bless you. So take that lamb home and eat the whole thing. You can have it. So the Passover was that lamb, sacrifice lamb, was God blessing you back. Because sometimes God did that, see. Now sometimes you have to sacrifice for sin. And so you have to give a lamb and they'll burn it on the altar. Nobody gets any. But sometimes God says... Hey, I want you come to me and thank me. I'm going to bless you. Have a good dinner. Take that lamb home and eat it. That's what's supposed to be happening. A celebration of all the things that God has done. And Jesus walks into the temple, and it's all about It's all about money. The whole thing is about money. So, why does it work that way? Well, old Caiaphas and his cronies say, well, of course we're going to make a million billion dollars, but other than that, what we want for you, dear Jews, we want for you to feel not put out at all, and so we're going to set up a little market for your convenience. Because otherwise, if you came from, say, uh, Nazareth, and it's three days travel, you got to bring your own lamb. You know, walk three days, bringing a lamb with you. Now we're going to take that burden off of you, and you can buy it from us. And when you get to the temple, by the way, uh, you owe us a temple tax. And so you're here to pay that tax. And we will only take that tax in a shekel, which is Hebrew money. All right. So if you're going to pay this temple tax, which, of course, you're supposed to do. Um, there's the shekel. Uh, we won't take it in Roman currency. You got to pay in a shekel. Well, who deals with shekels? Nobody does. They all deal with Roman currency. That's the currency of the day, or Greek currency. It's how they deal out there in the whole world, except for in a temple. So uh, I got my. Roman money, it's no good here. You've got to go exchange it. There's a money exchange. So you get shekels before you bring them into our house. All right, so here's a Roman dollar. Should be worth 10 shekels. Well, here it's only worth eight. Okay. 
So the money changers are just outright cheating people. And it said, it's convenience for you. We're helping you. When I hear the word convenience, it can't go with serving God. The two don't go together. And if you got it in your mind that they do, then you're just like them. It is not meant to be convenient. Jesus died on a cross. It was not convenient. And convenience, when it comes into religion, absolutely destroyed it, ruins it. Because it is not meant to be part of what you do for God. You don't say to God, do you? You don't say to God, well, I'll do that if it's convenient. Right? Do you ever say that? I hope not. I hope not. I hope you don't ever say that to God. It's like the young fella who said, my dear, I love you and I'd do anything to go and see you. I'd cross the burning desert and I'd swim the oceans. I'd crawl across broken glass just to see you. And then she said, well, how about tonight? He says, it's raining. <laughs> okay? It's not convenient. Now, you can say, God, I love you, I love you, I love you. He says, well, I need you here. Uh, it's not convenient. And whenever I find it becoming convenient, I change it so it's inconvenient. I want it to be inconvenient. That's why we have communion the way we do. Because I grew up in a, churches everywhere took the service that Jesus spent in, in John's gospel. There's five chapters, five full chapters in John's gospel on the communion service, the first one that Jesus had. He spent all, all evening doing it. And churches said, well, we're gonna, here's what we're going to do, make it more convenient. We're going to have our regular service. We're going to put it on the end. So you can get your little bread and thing, and we'll make it like five minutes. You can come up and grab it and go. We will make it convenient for you. I would never make it. I would never do it that way. Convenience is just an excuse for not doing it right. And Jesus walks in to that temple and he sees everything is wrong. Everything is wrong. And uh, probably the most, uh, the thing that probably bothered him the most, I would say, is you come into the temple, why does that money changer cheat those people? Well, he don't care about those people. He don't care anything about him. All right, so and then why does a high priest run the whole market? Because he don't care either. They don't care about the people. They could care less, all right? And as a result, how do you think the people feel about them? You just cheated me. You shortchanged me when I came to the temple. So, I don't like you either. Now, they're forced into doing what they do. And there are people who actually overcame it. And that's some of the most wonderful texts that are hidden in this two or three days that we're looking at. People who actually overcame all that. But here, everybody hates everybody else. Nobody trying to help anybody. And in the back room, by the way, they're trying to conspire how to murder Jesus of Nazareth. And he walks into that temple, and what's there? Convenience and theft. So he says, you made it a den of thieves. They're supposed to come here and worship. They're supposed to be singing their songs. They're supposed to be saying their prayers, making their sacrifices, going home and celebrating the blessings of God. That's what this is for. And uh, what's God got to do with what's going on here? Nothing. And God's got nothing to do with it. God's got nothing to do with it. And so, back 
to the fig tree. Verse 20. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. So Peter's surprised by it. He looks, look at that. <laughs> that tree withered away, and it says, from the roots. Right? And that's not normally where trees wither, right? I got a tree, I had a tree in my yard, I wanted to kill it. The black walnut tree, and I didn't want it because it was poison, and so I'm going to kill that thing. So I took my saw and I cut right around the whole thing. I said, There, I fixed you. Three years later, it was still growing. <laughs> so I cut it again. And it finally started to die off just a little bit. Now it's been burned in my wood stove. You're going to argue with me? I can't even kill the thing. Now Jesus says, you're never going to have fruit for anybody. He curses the fig tree. And we want to know why. It's just a fig tree. And Peter says, look. It dried up from the roots. How could he tell that? Well, probably the bottom leaves had already crumbled and fallen off, and there's just a few little leaves up on the top. It's just the opposite of what normally happens. And Peter's stunned. Look at it. That was yesterday. I think it was all covered with leaves. Look at it. It's all dead, dried up even from the roots. And of course, you always have to remember that what Jesus does, this is 24 hours later, okay? What Jesus does has to do with creation. And if you're going to understand a lot of what Jesus does, you've got to get in your head who he is. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Very important little passage here. For you to grasp Jesus Christ, you've got to grasp this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and divers' manners spake in the past unto the fathers by the prophet, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, by Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Jesus Christ created trees. All right? Jesus Christ created mountains and oceans and birds and animals and people. Jesus was the creator. And you say, well, it says God. No, it says here that he created them uh, by his son. All right? He made the world. So Jesus Christ is the maker. And so we think of it, well, God the Father thought and Jesus created it. And then the Spirit came and settled over the creation. How we get the Trinity in creation. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. So how does the world rotate in space? When we say by gravity to the sun holds it in its orbit, and then by centrifugal force it goes and rotates around and does what it does. No, I'm going to tell you how it really works. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus makes crea creation, and so he made gravity, and he still, it says, is upholding everything because he said, spin there until I tell you to stop. All right? So he can create anything he wants, and he can uncreate. Uh, he can speak to the wind and the waves, because he created wind. He created oceans. So he can speak to those things. He can walk on top of the water. He can feed 5,000 with five little rolls 
and a couple of little dried fish because he's in control of creation. And one of my favorite uh, uh, miracles is Jesus is the woman who bent over can't stand up. Why has she bent over? Because her bones are deformed. I used to know people who only stood like that. It was a, a lady and her son. They both stood like that. They could not stand up straight. And I used to think to myself, why don't they just stand up? Because their bones are all deformed. They couldn't stand up. The lady walks up to Jesus. She's there looking at the floor, and he says, stand up. What did he do? He recreated the bones in her back instantaneously. He can do whatever he wants. And Peter's all, look at that. Look at that. The tree's dead. Yeah, Jesus can do that. It was no big deal for him to do it. He upholds all things by the word of his power, and he said to that tree, no more for you, and the tree dried up. Sitting there, now, <clears throat> what's he thinking? Well, is it a miracle? I guess you could call it a miracle. Uh, the fig tree is a miracle. But it's a miracle with an exact purpose. Uh, it is also a parable. It's a miracle and a parable. So why would Jesus, you say, why did Jesus curse a tree? A tree didn't do nothing. Well, he cursed a tree because he's trying to teach people something. So the tree is dead. The reason it's dead is it doesn't have any fruit on it. Not one little fig on the whole tree. But it looked like it would be covered with figs. Right? So he goes up to it. It's deceiving. He says, it's just a tree. Well, it, just listen. It's deceiving because he saw it a long way off as he's coming out. Right there. Hey, there's probably figs on it. I'd like to get a couple. And he stops and there isn't any. So the tree is all covered with leaves, a symbol that it should have fruit. It doesn't have any. It doesn't have any fruit. All right. Now, where did he go after the fig tree? He went to the temple. What are they doing there? They're sacrificing, singing, saying prayers. Is there any fruit? Not one bit. Not one bit of fruit. And so here's a tree with nothing but leaves on it. And he's going to teach a lesson. He's going to tell a parable by the fig tree. Now, he did that before with fig trees. And I think part of that was helping to understand what this is. Luke, Luke chapter number 13. Luke chapter number 13. Here's... A parable of a fig tree. Okay. Well, let's see if we can maybe get some thoughts out of here that'll help us to understand why the fig tree got cursed, what Jesus is trying to teach by it. Luke chapter 13, verse 6. <clears throat> he spake also this parable a Certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. That sound familiar? All right. So here's a fig tree in a vineyard. A vineyard is prime ground. It's the best ground you got. You plant your, your uh, grapevines in there because it's the best ground you got. And then he said, I'm going to put a fig tree in the best ground I got so I can get figs when I want them. And he said to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And the answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also. I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. So, Jesus tells a story. He says, Planted a fig tree, went there one year, 
two year, three year, no figs. You know, why bother? Get this tree out of here. He said, well, let's give it a, another chance. We'll fertilize it heavily, and maybe we'll get some figs next year. So what's that parable about? Well, the fig tree had three years. <laughs> Jesus, is, his mind is fabulous. <laughs> Uh, he said, I had a plant there for three years. Now, when he clears the temple on Monday, he did that before. Three years ago. It's a little hint. Three years ago. So when Jesus first started his ministry, he walked into the, and he cleared out the money table. All right? And he went back that year, went back the next year, and he went back this time and cleared it out again. There's no fruit on the tree. They're still changing, cheating, getting rich, trying to make things convenient. Everything that they do wrong, they're doing on it. So we'll give it every advantage, give it one more year, but then that's it. It's over. The temple... He went there the first year, second, now it's the third year, it's the same thing. What about the fig tree? Fig tree's dead now. It never produced any fruit. All right? The fig tree's dead. So here's the idea. You go to the temple, and everything going on, God's got nothing to do with it. You could take God away and nobody even noticed. Matter of fact, that's kind of what they did, isn't it? Because the Son of God came in to that temple looking for fruit and there wasn't any. Okay? And so if you look at a church and you say, well, has God got anything to do with that? There's some places that God could go away and nobody would notice. There's some places that operate where God could go away and who would even notice? We don't really use him or count on him here. And so that church, like this temple, it needs to die. Get rid of it. It needs to die. Why? Because it's teaching by example that religion doesn't need God. And when they walked into that temple, God had nothing to do with it. He walked around, he looked at it that first Sunday, walked around and looked at it, and they went back Monday and going to clean this place out because everything they do, they're teaching by example that religion doesn't need God. Therefore, it needs to die. I heard of a guy, he was a superintendent of... Uh, uh, one of the denominations, and he would come and close churches because the church was failing, and he checked out, see why it was failing, and then he'd come and he'd lock the door and stand by the door. And people come and say, this is our church. I know it is. You don't need God at all. So I locked the door, and he closed churches. They said, where are we going to go? He said, well, there's another church over there where they seem to need God. Why don't you go over there? Pretty bold, but not a bad idea. <laughs> you know? So this fig tree is dead overnight because there was an expectation of fruit and it didn't produce. Now, let's go back to Mark and see what Jesus says about how this works. And this is this is really, you ask this, when you read it the first time, you say, well, what's that got to do with anything? Ah, it's got everything to do with how it works. Verse 21 again in Mark 11. Peter calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, have faith in God. 
Here's your answer, okay? Maybe I'll give you an answer. You wonder about the fig tree. Have faith in God. What's that got to do with the fig tree? Well, let's go on. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatever he saith. So now he's talking about prayer. No doubt. Put the two together. You can't have doubt when you pray. 24. Therefore I say unto you that what things soever you desire when you pray, believe you shall receive them and you shall have them. And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. And they say, what's that got to do with a fig tree? It's the whole problem. He's explaining it here, what he saw in the temple. And what was missing in the temple. And he said, no, we just went there and cleared the place out. And you notice this tree is dead. And it's time for that tree, that temple to die. They're going to die, and it did. It died and went away, and it has never returned since. Gone forever. All right? Just like he said, like the fig tree. How could they have avoided it? Well, first of all, you've got to have faith, he said. You have to have faith in God. We're going to start with that, he said. And that faith is going to produce in you no doubts at all. Now, sometimes the words uh, people use nowadays, I hear a lot, is relationship with God. All right? Have a relationship with God. And that's a good word. I know that's a good word, but I like it's a word I like a whole lot better. Because I got a relationship with a guy at the corner store down there. I go in there and order food, and I say, "You trust me?" He goes, "Yeah, you can go. You don't have to pay." Of course, we pay later. <laughs> but I got a relationship with him. But that's really not. You can have relationships for various. Forms and ways, but I think there's a much better way to say it. Who knows who Joseph Scriven is? You ever heard of Joseph Scriven? Well, when I tell you what he did, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he wrote a song. And if anybody really ever got it, how it's supposed to work, this guy did. He really understood. God. And when I sing this song, I can't help but choke up on one verse or the other. It gets me every time because some people really understand what this is about. This is about. He's the one that wrote a song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And what's the next one? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And what? Oh, what needless pain we bear. He's trying to tell us, look, you know, the relationship with God, you gotta, let's, let's make it, uh, let's change the relationship idea and let's make it friendship. I like that a whole lot better. I think that's what we gotta have. And a friendship with God so that, like a very good friend, I trust him. I trust him. There's people I trust and say, would you do that? I guarantee they do. I trust them. And when it comes to God, I trust him completely. 
whatever it is. And he says, well, that's what you're going to have to do. Because so you can say to this mountain, be removed and throw that mountain in the sea. I can't do that. Trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Or is there a doubt in your mind that he will not take care of whatever it is you got? I think we get, we're full of doubts, and it's because we're not friends enough with Jesus. We have not got to the point where we're friends enough with Jesus. And you really... The basic element that's missing, he says, is when they went into that temple, they didn't know God. They could care less about God. It was all about money and whatever else they felt like doing. It didn't, they didn't have any confidence in God. They didn't trust God. They did not have relationship. They were not friends with God. And that's what he says you will need to be in, so you're going to pray, he says. And he says, uh, when I say unto you, what sort of things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive and you shall have. Why do you believe? Is faith wishing hard? No. That's not what faith is. Faith is not wishing hard. I'm going to wish real hard. And here's the next thing. Is faith, oh God, I'd like you to make my life perfect. I don't want anything to go wrong ever. And all to be perfect. We just want everything to just run smooth, God. So cast that little optical in the sea. <laughs> you know, you have to remember, always remember that Jesus said, here's how I'm going to teach you how to pray. All right, I'm going to teach you how to pray. Here's what you're going to say. Thy kingdom come. It's about the kingdom. It's about what God wants done. All right, and then you're going to say, well, I'm going to pray, cast a mountain into the sea. If it's about the kingdom, yeah, God can do it. God can do it. And what is he going to do? He's going to take you through. That's why it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And people say, I don't want to go through that valley. God, don't let me go through that valley. He said, go. Come on. I'll be with you. Go through the valley. And so a lot of our prayers are, let's make everything perfect. And everything. I'd like to just coast along, God. And he said, no, you're my friend. I'm going to let you coast along. You're going to live the things that life brings you. I'll take you through. I'll take you through the valley of the shadow of death. And you really got to believe that. They came and they locked the doors of our church. So we went down there. Went in the parking lot. Say, well, that was that was tough. It wasn't easy. It was tough. I preached in pouring rain. My Bible has wrinkled pages now because of that. And I preached in a 30 mile an hour wind in my teeth. I preached at 40 degrees. With a big old heavy coat and a hat on. And the ladies were calling in, you got to wear a hat. Okay, I will. That day I, that day I did. That day I did, all right? Why? Because I will take you through. I'm making it perfect, but there's an obstacle, and you're going to believe in God. Say, yeah, this is God. He's my friend, and I can go do that. Let's go do it. Let's go do it. And we did it. Why? Because that's having faith without doubt. And so you're going to pray and say, okay, God. And he says, that's what I expect from you. But then he threw this thing on the end here. When you stand praying, forgive. You have ought against any that your Father also, which is heaven, may forgive your trespasses. And if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I tell you what, there's a verse or two we got to think about. See, if you're going to be friends with God, you want to be God to be your friend, okay? If you're going to be friends with God, here's a fact, all right? If I'm going to be friends with God, I know I fail at a lot of things. 
and I'm going to have to look to him quite often and say, oh, I did it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. And I sometimes I say to God, in sin did my mother conceive me. I just, that's who I am. And I'm sorry. If you're going to be friends with God, you're going to have to apologize quite a bit. And you're going to have to say to him, will you forgive me? And he looks down he goes, well, if you've got a grudge against somebody in the church or you're mad against somebody in the other pew, why should I forgive you? Is there any logic in me forgiving you and you not forgiving everybody else? No. No. So don't say, I want to be God's friend. And so, but I can't get along with these people. So, he says, there's two laws. Jesus says, what's the first great law? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and all thy strength. That's a real good friend. That's your best friend. And then I shall love my neighbor as myself. And so down here, we have love. And when Jesus walked in that temple, there wasn't an ounce of love to be found anywhere. It just wasn't there. And so he says, you've got to bear fruit. There's some things you've got to have. You've got to be friends with God. And you've got to make sure that your relationships are right and that you keep them right. Do everything in your power to keep them right. And then when you pray and don't doubt, you trust me completely, you can pray and you can have hope. Oh, look, faith, hope, and love. What did Paul say? These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus walked in that temple and he was looking for somebody who showed love to each other, who loved God, and he couldn't find anybody. There was no fruit on that tree. That tree needs to die. Get rid of it. Get, why does it cumber the ground? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Why did God go back three years? And it's in the parable is great. He went back three years. You know, because he's telling his own story. He has been patient for three years. He has waited for three years. And now he's asking the question, why? Why does it cumber the ground without fruit? So you and I, if we're going to not cumber the ground, if we're going to get what this really means, we're going to come to church hungry for God, anxious to hear from him, to know what he's got to say to us, learning about these things, and then we're going to love each other, and that's what we do pretty good here. We're pretty good at that. Pretty good at loving each other, because that's really... What is it about? And so what does that fill us with? Hope. Hope. We got hope. We got hope for the future. We don't look into the future and say, oh my goodness, what's Washington, D.C. going to do next? I want to know, oh my goodness, what's Jesus going to do? Through the valley of the shadow. He said, I'll go with you. Whatever it is, I'm going with you. So come on. Come on. So the fig tree was cursed, not for any strange reason. He's teaching a lesson about religion and how people can have a real relationship and how you can have religion without any of it. Religion can exist without anything. It has nothing to do with God. And there's a, I'm afraid there's an awful lot of it. When I turn it on, some crazy nut on TV and he's saying do this and God will fill your pocket I don't want to be in his shoes someday he stands in front of God he said what did you talk about faith hope and love no I talked about money yeah like they did in the temple in Jerusalem just like that those guys are in hot water I'll tell you they are in hot water all right. 
I could go a long time. I just got started. But I got to stop because my time is up. So, see, you got a nice little extra that people on Sunday morning miss. Aren't you glad? Yeah, we want to get as much as we can. And so we know how Jesus thinks. Because when he gets to that cross, and he's hanging on that cross, if you can figure out what he's thinking, I don't know if I can. But I sure going to try. Thank you. Thank you.